Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you listening. This is our eighth episode, and if you're tuning in now, there's a decent chance that you might actually be a fan, (laughs) as crazy as it sounds. And we've had a lot of big names in the Liberty movement these first, you know, eight episodes or so. We've had Stefan Kinsella. We've had Dr. Mark Thornton. We even had Glenn Jacobs, a seven-foot-tall monster, WWE's Kane. But he's actually not as scary as he looks on TV. He's a smart guy. Check him out in episode six. Great libertarian, knows a lot about Austrian economics. Now, before I get into today's episode, I want to remind you guys about a little contest we got going on. You can enter in one of two ways to get a free copy of Meet Ron Paul by Matt Blankenship. It is the Ron Paul biography for youth, hoping to get it out into a bunch of different schools, libraries, and that kind of thing, and introduce this new generation, the young kids growing up, to the ideas of liberty. Help them get down that path. Maybe reading about Ron Paul is one way they can do that. And you can enter this contest. All you have to do is send me an email. Mark, M-A-R-C. Don't use the K. I really get snippety about that stuff. M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. You can email me one of two things. You can email me a question for next week's guest. Next week's guest is Walter Block, very well-known Austrian economist Anarcho-capitalists, if you have any questions about, you know, how could things work in a free society? How could we function without the state? Why does Austrian economics matter? Any of that stuff, email me and I will ask Walter Block on air next week. Another way you can enter the contest is to sign up for our weekly digest. You go to the right-hand side of our website, a little box in the upper right. You really can't miss it. It says sign up for our weekly digest. You just put in your email, and then every Friday, you get a gift from the Lions of Liberty in your inbox. Instead of having to check in every day, I know you're busy. You can just get an email with all of our stories of the week in it and just get your little liberty on that way. And all you got to do, you get a confirmation once you sign up. Forward me that confirmation. Again, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Once I get all the emails in, I'm going to set the deadline at the release date of next week's episode, which will be next Friday, November 1st. That is the deadline, at which point I will choose a winner at random, and this person will get a free copy of Meet Ron Paul. It's that simple. You just got to send me an email, ask a question, sign up for our email list, either one, and you're entered into the contest. Now, we've had a lot of big names, as I said, the first few weeks of the podcast. A lot of names you've heard of in the Liberty Movement, but today we're going to do things a little different. We're going to mix it up. We're going to go in-house. We're going to have our very first whiskey chat. I know we've teased it before. We're going to have a couple contributors of the website come on, and, you know, we're going to have a glass of whiskey and have a little chat, and we're going to see where it goes. It's going to be completely unscripted. I don't know what's going to happen. Never been done before. But before that, I'm going to bring on my first guest. He is a columnist for economicpolicyjournal.com. The Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and he's also a contributor for our site, Lions of Liberty, Chris Frasini. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Chris, let's get right to it. You've been listening to the show, obviously, so you probably have a good idea of what I'm going to start off by asking. What first sparked your interest in all this liberty stuff? What really got that flame going? You're obviously passionate about this. How did it all start? That's a good question, uh, one I've never written about. It actually goes back to when I was real young. I don't know how old. My late grandmother was from Poland before she came to the United States. While she was in Poland during World War II, as a teenager, she was kidnapped by Nazi soldiers. And they basically, for the rest of the war, forced her to work for them. She wasn't in battle or anything, I guess... I don't know where she was, but she, against her will, was taken from her family and forced to work for the Nazis. Somehow, she survived, and after her war was over, was able to go home and came here to the United States afterwards. And uh, that taught me some uh, serious lessons. Number one, it showed me just how bad governments can become. And two was gratitude that here in the United States we haven't experienced that, and hopefully we never do. So that got me rolling, I would say, that early lesson. As I got started getting into politics, 
Like everyone else, I saw that you had two choices, Democrats or Republicans. That's the box that's made for you. I looked into both, and I definitely knew I was not a Democrat. These people were telling you to your face that they're going to rip you off, and I, I just morally had a problem with that. So uh, on the other side of the box, I saw that there were the Republicans who sounded better. They wanted a smaller government. This is what they claim, at least. You know, to roll back the state and keep it small, limited, you know, the rhetoric that they use. So naturally, I gravitated towards that party. So I considered myself a Republican, the whole nine yards voted Republican, listened to Rush Limbaugh, the whole thing. Little did I know that I fell into the trap that was made for you, and I was a part of it. Then the next phase that I can remember, I never knew that I'd be interviewed about this, but the next phase that I remember was picking up a book. I have no idea how I picked it up, but I picked up a book by Ayn Rand, and that was the next phase. This was something that shook me out of the Democrat-Republican box. I mean, she was speaking much more along libertarian lines, even though she wasn't a libertarian, and was just what I needed. And I read voraciously everything, or just about everything she put out. As time went on, as I kept growing, I guess, intellectually, you know, I started to notice major errors in Rand's philosophy, and it's a whole other conversation to itself. And again, by, I'm going to say good luck. I have no idea, but I came across an article by George Reisman, who was with the Mises Institute at the time. I'm not sure if he's still with them, but he was at the time writing for them, and it just opened my eyes. I was introduced to the Austrian school. He wrote a paper on business cycle theory, Austrian business cycle theory, and when I read it, I was just amazed, amazed that I came across this. And that introduced me to the Mises Institute, to LouRockwell.com, to Mary Rothbard, to Mises, and it was a whole new world. And I left my Randian phase and ended up where I am now, fortunately, as a big supporter of the Austrian School of Economics and a libertarian. And I think how you describe this is what kind of a lot of us go through when we're younger. We're kind of trying to shoehorn the way we feel and our belief system into this left-right two-party divide. We have to say, okay, well, I got to be either a Democrat or Republican. Obviously, those are my choices. So how do I kind of reconcile the things I think and the things I believe into one of those sides? And then for a lot of us that go on to think differently, we kind of see, well, on this side, I, you know, maybe I don't think marijuana should be illegal, for example, or, you know, but I don't think the government should be taxing me. But those are two different sides. So how do I choose? And then something along the way, whether it be a book or just meeting the right person or a conversation with someone, like you said, with you, it was Atlas Shrugged. It just shakes you out of it. And you realize, wait a minute, there is another way. And then they're not telling us about it. And there are other ways to think about things. And exactly. It's pretty much how we've all kind of gotten into this in one way or another. Now, Chris, how did you take that passion and, and everything that you've learned, and how did you decide to translate that into actually doing something about it? Because, I mean, for years, I think many libertarians are the same way. We kind of sit around feeling like we're the only libertarian. You know, even if we've read articles or books from other libertarians, we still, in our own private circles, feel like the only one. So what made you start take this from something you just thought about and felt to yourself and translate into something you need to share with other people, either in your personal life or through the writing that you've been doing? Well, when I discovered the Mises Institute, and libertarianism. It was a long process. I'm going to say it was at least 10 years, probably a little over 10 years. You would have thought I was going to medical school. That's how much I read. <laughs> <laughs> I just read Rothbard, Mises. And we'd never be finished because these guys have written so much that, I mean, I have read so much Rothbard in my life that and there is just so much left. I mean, how did he write it all, first of all? Because I don't think I can even find the time to read it all. It's really phenomenal. I consider him the Michael Jordan of economics. He was far, far above, but he did the work. And, you know, we don't have to all be Rothbards. He was the Rothbard, and he did what he had to do. You know, each of us has to do what we have to do. But I devoured it for 10 years. I didn't know what I was going to use it for. 
I uh, just studied and took, you know, very detailed notes, which are now paying off now that I'm a writer. But I took detailed notes along the way. It was like putting a puzzle together, putting all the pieces. And I'm still, you know, a baby, I consider myself, with all that's still left to read and still left to learn. And after a decade goes by, you start to see the world a little differently, and it starts to eat at you that you have this knowledge, you know, it, it eats at you that you got You can't just hold on to it. It's like, you so, know, an asteroid is, is on the way, you know, out there in space. And you're the scientist that discovered it. And you just can't keep that to yourself for, for too for too long. You got to exactly. tell people about it. That's how it happened. I can't take credit for myself, but because of the knowledge that I acquired, I was able to see the housing bubble very clearly when it was going to burst. You know, not to the exact day. That's that's impossible. But you knew when the party was over, and I tried to warn as many people as I could, but it just started to eat at me that I can't just keep this within me. I have to somehow, and I had no idea how, share it. And fortunately, the Internet came along I started a few blogs by myself and nothing never caught on with me. And for a little time, I just tried to forget it. Uh, You know, I just know this. Other people don't know it. That's life, I guess. I'll just have to live with that. Then one day, like a spark lit up and I couldn't take it anymore. And I decided, you know what, I don't know what road I'm going to take, but I'm going to take a road to start sharing this stuff that I learned. And once I committed to it, I started to then be aware of perhaps some opportunities around me. Now, how I ended up at Economic Policy Journal, that's a little story in itself, too. I follow Lou Rockwell for many years now. And, you know, whenever he writes, I make sure not to miss it. So I noticed he kept linking to this guy named Bob Wenzel. Economic Policy Journal, and I took notice, and I thought to myself, Lou, he likes this guy. He keeps linking to him, and when I would go there and read him, I liked him too. And one day I decided, you know what, this is where I think I belong. I decided at that moment to do whatever I can to work for Bob Wenzel. And uh, I didn't know him. I didn't know Lou Rockwell. I actually didn't have any contacts. I just decided this is the road I'm going to take, and uh, somehow I have to get on his radar. So I decided I'm going to go an indirect way. I'm not just going to contact him, ask him for a job. I I believe that the knowledge I have could be valuable if I uh, am able to express it the right way. So I decided the best way is I knew he read his comments because the comments are moderated. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to become the best commenter that I could possibly be. I remember trying to, you know, let him know he read this book, quote this person, this. I wanted to get on his radar somehow. All right, just put yourself out there be like, hey, I, I like what you're doing, and I'm obviously I know what I'm talking about a little bit too because you're making knowledgeable comments and the kind that will stand out to somebody. Yes, that was the goal. And I don't remember now how everything happened. It's like a blur sometimes because it, it seems like just uh, last week that I was just kind of going on little libertarian rants with my friends and I look up and suddenly I've got a, a whole website and a podcast and I'm just kind of like, yes. how did all this really happen? I'm not. Yeah. Yes. It all happens in small steps that, you know, at the time they're big steps. They seem, I remember thinking day and night, all right, how am I going to get Wenzel, economic policy journal, attention? I was thinking to myself, well, how can I make his life easier? How can I make things faster for him? How can I save him time? You know, I, I was thinking along those lines and I know a little bit of tech stuff. I, you know, I'm a bit of a tech geek. I would help him out. I would create graphics. I would send him a graphic. I wouldn't expect a thank you or him to even acknowledge it, but I would just send it to him. If he liked it, he could use it. You know, uh, there was stuff like that. There were anything I could do to help, I, uh, I did. And that's how I thought. I treated the site, even though I didn't know the man, I, in my mind, treated it as if it were my own, and how could I make it better? Eventually, I broke through on a very small scale, I noticed his social media, it wasn't posting, like hours went by, four hours. And I thought, you know what, let me contact him and say, how about I take over your social media? And uh, he went for it. I told him, you know, your social media hasn't updated. I think he had some automatic posting. And uh, I took it over, and it was a big relief because now I had a foot in. You know, we would talk. We ended up talking on the phone, and we... uh, you know, started our relationship that way. What you're describing, Chris, is 
kind of a lesson that people can take even if you're not trying to break into, say, libertarian writing or, or libertarian activism or what have you. But it's a lesson for anything anybody wants to do. I mean, you got to go out there. I kind of talked about this last week or when I spoke with Glenn Jacobs. I mean, if you see a potential opportunity and it's something you're passionate about, you just got to go for it. And there are different ways you can go for it. You can start and take the Chris Rossini route and just start putting yourself out there. Start kind of doing things and making comments so someone notices you. You can do it in the very direct route. You can just send an email like I've had to do with a lot of my guests here and say, look, I really like what you're saying. I like what you're doing. Do you want to come talk to me? And this applies to any field, anything you want to pursue in life. And, you know, this is just another example of that that we're getting from Chris's story here. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have, I don't have an economics degree. I don't have a history degree. I don't have. You have so much economic knowledge. You didn't, you didn't go through all those years being brainwashed. <laughs> yes. It was a blessing in disguise. I had to do it out of sheer just, uh, will and, uh, you know, just persistence. I did eventually break through and we formed a great relationship. He ended up after the social media, he called me one day. I'll never forget this and asked me to produce his he was going to do a show just like you're doing here and uh, asked me to be his producer i had no experience whatsoever but i wouldn't let that stop me i told him yes anyway i would go down swinging before i said no and that's another lesson that you guys listening out there can take if somebody asks you something and an area you're passionate about you say yes, and then you figure it out. <laughs> you know, that's, that's something exactly I've right. learned. You got to be a yes man. You say yes to everything, even if your first instinct is to say no. You just got to spit out that word yes. And then, you know, once you get off the phone or close your email, then you can then you can panic and start figuring out how the hell to do what it is you just agreed to. Yeah, that's that's how it was. I was I was kind of nervous, when, uh, but I said yes anyway. I said I'm going to do this. And uh, thank goodness I did because our show has been fantastic We've had so many great guests. I think it's definitely exceeded any expectations that I had, and I would guess Bob would say the same. But, yeah, the first guest, he told me, okay, I want you to contact Governor uh, Gary Johnson. And, <laughs> you know, I've never contacted a former governor before, but uh, somehow I found a way to get it done, and it became easier and easier, and now I could contact and talk to anyone. You know, but that initial yes and, and not backing down was, uh, I'm glad I did it. And as the time has gone on, we got to know each other even better. And then the time came where I felt comfortable enough to ask him if he would mind if I contributed to his site. And I told myself, you know, it's not going to hurt you to ask. He could say no, it, it won't, it'll be okay. And I asked him, and he, <laughs> I remember what he said, he goes, sure, why not? And, you know, because he trusted me, I've worked with him long enough for him to know what I thought and who I was, that he gave me the shot and, you know, my goal was achieved. I now work with Bob Wenzel. The worst thing anybody can ever tell you is no. And if they tell you no, that's you just find yourself right where you were before. So there's never a harm in asking. You know, there's never harm in asking to do more for somebody, to be more involved in something. And even if they do say no, you know, you might have helped yourself just by putting yourself out there and just by letting someone know that you are interested in doing more. So, you know, we're learning a lot of things here in this discussion, a lot of lessons that people can take. If you somehow accidentally stumbled upon this, you don't like libertarians, you want nothing to do with it but hey you can learn some real life lessons about how to conduct yourself and how to push forward a career or anything you're passionate about in life yeah that's uh, that's true it doesn't matter what whatever you like and you you have that fire in your belly go for it don't worry about money don't worry about if you can do it just go for it and everything else will come at its own time Absolutely. Now, how did you go from being, you know, just doing your stuff with Bob Wenzel to expanding even more? Because now you're writing for a couple of websites. You went over to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, ronpaulinstitute.org. And hey, now you're a contributor over with us at Lions of Liberty as well. So how did you end up branching out? Because Economic Policy Journal has such a large audience, you now have the ability to meet a lot of interesting people. With the Ron Paul Institute, we interviewed Daniel McAdams, who runs the Institute. I'm on a recent episode of our podcast as well. That was episode five. So uh, make sure you go and check out that as well. Yeah. And uh, I remember Daniel. I remember when we did the interview. He was just the nicest guy. And, and stuff went wrong. We had technical difficulties. We lost Bob on the call. 
And it was as if nothing happened. Daniel didn't huff and puff. He was the nicest guy in the world. We were just, uh, until we got the problems fixed, he was just extremely nice about it. We had a conversation during the interim, and uh, he really made a mark on me. So somehow, I don't again, I don't remember, but we ended up emailing one another, and we got to know each other's histories and stuff. I told him about my grandmother from Poland, and we formed an email relationship. A day came where an opportunity was there to write for the Ron Paul Institute, and you know I'm very, very fortunate and grateful to be representing Dr. Paul, somebody who I've looked up to for so many years. That's how I ended up there. And, and again, through Economic Policy Journal, I, I got to meet you, and you were kind enough to ask me to become a contributor on your site. I'm proud to be a part of it in any way that I can be and uh, to be on your show today. So, you know, that initial breakthrough with Bob now connected me to some fantastic people. And I consider myself very lucky because I'm surrounded by tons of great people. And again, it kind of comes full circle, you know, just like Chris started putting himself out there on Economic Policy Journal and eventually introduced himself to Bob. You know, I had kind of corresponded with Chris a few times on Twitter, here and there on an email. And I really liked what you were doing over at EPJ. I really thought your style was really direct and hard-hitting and simple, simple in the good way, simple in the way that you're not going on necessarily three-page you know, memorandums about certain subjects. You're just hitting the point and really putting it out there in a way that is very easy to understand for people that are new to these ideas. And, you know, I, your post really stood out to me, so I, I kind of did what you did with Bob. I said, hey, can't hurt to ask, right? I can't hurt to ask if this guy wants to maybe branch out and do a little more writing. And, you know, after a little bit of thought on it, you said yes, and, and here we are today. So we're, we're definitely thrilled to have Chris as a part of the team and as a part of the Lions of Liberty. Now, Chris, one thing I think you are really great at in your writing is calling out the propagandists, all these mouthpieces, uh, the neocons that try to speak for everybody or they try to speak for you know their their special interest groups or what have you and you don't let them you don't really let these guys get away with anything especially you know you are always calling out jennifer rubin over at the washington post and um really good at pointing out the overall propaganda that we get from the media uh recent post of yours over at economic policy journal you were showing all these north korean paintings of propaganda from china and of course the north korean propaganda pictures china as this you know beautiful magical elegant place because china is supposed to be you know their big brother of communism and you know we look at these north korean paintings and we're like okay this is obviously ridiculous propaganda and then you juxtapose that with a whole bunch of magazine covers from the united states time newsweek and all this stuff and it's just when you look at this it's so clear how similar the propaganda is because these magazines are all you've got bernanke portrayed as a god you've got one where greenspan is hailed as a savior of the economy which is just hilarious to people that understand you know austrian business cycle and how much greenspan helped to create this housing bubble so can you discuss a little bit just how the state uses propaganda through the media and uh, the relationship between the state and the media and how they use that to kind of shape public opinion? Well, thank you. I'm glad that you like the way I write. I've tried to take as uh, as much as it comes naturally to me. I was really uh, inspired by Rothbard, who never wastes a word when he wrote, and also Lou Rockwell, who is probably the most fearless man alive. So those two inspired my writing, and if it comes across as clear and easy to understand, then, you know, that really makes me feel good, because uh, that's what I set out to do. As far as the state and the media, well, the media, I consider them as an arm of the state, and I consider the Fed as an arm of the state. If I could try to get this easy to understand, what we're basically faced with here is like a double-edged sword. On the one end, we have the Federal Reserve Central Bank, and on the other end, we have the military empire, and they both complement and feed off of each other. The Federal Reserve finances the military empire. The military empire protects the Federal Reserve and its notes. And by that, I mean the world, everybody's using dollars, but you know the first person that tries to get off of that will have the military at their door immediately. So that's what I mean by that. 
go into that a little bit more for some people that might not be familiar with that when you're talking about the military being at the door when certain countries try to go off the dollar. Now, there are a few countries in our recent history that have done this kind of thing. I believe Saddam Hussein wanted to stop taking dollars for gold, as well as I believe Muammar Gaddafi in Libya was attempting to create some sort of African gold standard. So how exactly does that, does this dollar hegemony tie into the foreign policy? Well, the dollar, because they create so many trillions of it, they're fighting economic loss. And it's a fight that they will ultimately lose. When that'll be, whether it'll be in our lifetime or our kids' lifetime, you know, who knows? When you look at the big picture, it's just they're fighting a battle that they can't win. They create this money, and the money has to be accepted. So if anybody wants to... uh like you, you named, the worst thing you could do is to even think about dumping the dollar. And you, we have military all over the world. So they'll be at your doorstep f- faster than you could vote on it. So uh, that's what we're facing. Now, I highly doubt that the military empire is going to just, they're going to just bring everybody home. And, and uh, you know what, you non-interventionists were right. I doubt that that's going to happen. I, if I had to guess, it's going to be a financial way that they're going to have to stop this madness. At some point, there's just not going to be, it's not that there's not going to be enough money. There is going to be enough money, but that money is not going to buy anything anymore. It's not going to buy what it does now. And at some point, you know, you literally aren't going to be able to pay to have all these bases everywhere. And at some point, soldiers are, might not accept these checks that don't buy them anything to keep slogging away in the desert or in the mountains of Afghanistan or what have you. Exactly. Yeah, at some point, economic law, they're going to hit the wall. And just like every other empire in history, none have made it. They eventually hit that economic barrier. And then no matter what they do to try to get past that barrier, it won't work. The tide will turn again when that'll be is anyone's guess. The best that we can tell is that they're not doing too well. They're not looked uh, very favorably around the world. And now that all this news about they're spying on Brazilians, they're spying on the French, they're spying on everybody, you know, all of this hurts. And the fact that we have troops all over the world, I mean, just common sense would say, you know what? People are going to get upset with this. Who wants to be bossed around by some foreign power? And then at home, the money printing isn't having the effect that it used to have. They used to initiate their bond buying and money creation and create one boom after another, but now it's losing its luster. They're not doing too well. They're really struggling. And the media, its job, I mean, you mentioned Jennifer Rubin. She's one of many neocons. And in the financial world, there are the Krugmans and the, you know, all of his minions that he has under him. But Krugman's got a Nobel Prize in economics. He knows what he's talking about, and we should be listening to him. The whole thing is to keep this double-edged sword going. You know, that's that's their job, is to just keep the deception going, keep people believing. That's That's their job. And fortunately, in the world of the Internet, you're not limited to listening to those voices. There are the places like... Bezos.org and LouRockwell.com and Economic Policy Journal, you know, the sites that we write for that can help open your eyes a little bit to uh, show you what we're up against and that you're being fooled. Well, right. If it's the job of the propagandist to keep the American public believing, believing the current system, believing that the way things are, are the way things should be, have been and always will be then it's the job of you and I and everybody out there doing things like us, Bob Wenzel, Lou Rockwell, so many people now with the internet, it's our job to do the opposite and to point out the truth and to point out that there is another way to think about things, there is a right way to think about things, and that the way that we're viewing things both economically, with our foreign policy, and our general philosophy overall, there's another way and it can change. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Now, before I let you go, what is the best way for people to find you and follow all the writing that you're doing? You can find me at economicpolicyjournal.com, also at ronpaulinstitute.org. I write the Neocon Watch column there. That's primarily where I write. And also here at lionsofliberty.com. My Twitter handle is at Chris Rossini. You can also find me on Google+. Plus. I put all of my work up there, so if you're on that network... You can keep up with me there. Great. Chris Rossini, thank you so much for joining us here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Please share to follow his work, and we will be back 
after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, and welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Had a great chat there with Chris Rossini. And now we're going to have a little segment that we've built up for a while here. We've teased it. It's the Lions of Liberty whiskey chat. I've got my very first in-studio guest here in the Lions Den. Here in Los Angeles, California. And here with me today for our first whiskey chat, I have two of my co-founders of LionsofLiberty.com. For the very first time, our first in-studio guest in the Lion's Den, Brian McWilliams. Thank Welcome you. Welcome the Lion's Den. Thank you. The splendor I'm surrounded with. I can't even begin to describe, honestly. The, the studios of the Lion's of Liberty podcast are breathtaking to behold. There's There's sapphires. There's diamonds and rubies. The couch is magnificent, really. It's, it's, it's plush. It's a top-notch operation here, no doubt. We spare no expense on the decor and on our whiskey. So, Brian, what whiskey are you drinking today? I have, uh, I'm sporting a little Maker's Mark 46. It's a step above the usual Maker's Mark. It's a pretty tasty beverage, I will say. Excellent. And I've just got a standard classic Jack Daniels, Tennessee whiskey. Nothing fancy. I'm keeping it. You know, I'm keeping it college style. Actually, college style would probably be even lower quality than Jack Daniels. Oh, real Jim Beam, I think. We also have on the line, all the way across the country, from Chili Chili, PA, John Odermatt, better known to me as Odie. John, how you doing? It's great to be here. Great to be here from the uh, freezing cold state of uh, Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. Here, it's supposed to. Uh, snow tonight so that's uh, that's exciting it's exciting no i don't know what that is I, I live in california i've never heard of that but um it's freezing here too so i don't know what you know it's, it's freezing as hell here it was like what 60 today it was all the way down to 60 oh, okay. it was crazy so look we all we're all a little chilly that's why we got the whiskey to warm us up mm-hmm. and uh, john what whiskey are you drinking over there uh, speak of the devil, you were just uh, talking about Jim Beam. I have myself some uh, Kentucky uh, straight bourbon whiskey, Jim Beam, Keep fitting for, uh, for our discussion here, I think. Nice. We've got the full gamut. We're really, that's the point of this segment, though. We're trying to harken back to our college days. We've known each other for, you know, 10, 12-ish years or so, not to age ourselves too much. And this is what we used to do. We used to sit around, drink a whiskey, and have a chat. So we're going to try to recreate that experience for you all here in our very first The Lions of Liberty Whiskey Chat. You know, I want to say, I think this is actually how our involvement became, you know, with the Liberty Party. I think it actually started this exact same way. The Liberty Party. That well, is- our involvement with the, well, not not that we consider ourselves official members of the Libertarian Party, but involvement with the Libertarian cause, getting involved with Ron Paul. I think it all began with uh, a bit of whiskey and a bit of Ron Paul talk, and I think that's how we kind of all got aboard. One way or another, I think it does all come back to the whiskey. Um, now, Odie, you actually got first got involved. I mean, I specifically remember we were having a few glasses of whiskey in a, a seedy Inland Empire bar, and that's kind of what led you down the path to liberty. Can you touch on that for the audience for a second? Yeah, I think we. Uh, you know, I think I remember about maybe you know half of that night. But yeah, the whiskey was definitely flowing, and uh, you know you were bringing up some some crazy ideas I'd never heard of before, like you know a Republican that was anti-war and, and all that good stuff. So uh, I was uh, you know pretty you know taken aback and never heard of that before. But uh, you know enough Jim Beam and it opened up my mind and. Um, started talking about Ron Paul and uh, you know really just really just lit a fire under me and uh, led right into the 2000 debates and the 2008 presidential election the run up and from there it just you know just hit the ground running and uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard a politician you know just you know take on the establishment um, you know I remember vividly during that 
um, debate, I think it was in maybe December 2007, uh, the famous uh, Rudy Giuliani um, debate when Ron Paul... Uh, you know, we all miss Rudy just a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that, that really um, opened my eyes for sure. So from there, it's just been you know, educational experience and trying to read as much and learn as much as I can since then. And that's why we started linesofliberty.com. That's why we, I do this podcast. That's why we're here in the Whiskey Chat to open up some minds, get some ideas flowing, and hopefully get people thinking a different way. And today's subject is one that's brought a lot of controversy our way. Whenever we write about this person, this subject, we get a lot of flack. We get a lot of praise, too. But it generates, I would say, more heat than just about anything we talk about. And the subject today is... Sorry, we're still working on the budget for the actual drum roll. The subject is... Drum roll. Rand Paul. Now, when Rand Paul first kind of came on the scene, I think in probably 2008, 2009, he was stumping for Ron a little bit. We all liked him. You know, he said a lot of good things. He sounded a lot like Ron Paul. And then when he ran for Senate in 2010, I think we were all pretty excited about that, too. Hey, this is the next Ron Paul, another guy that understands the message of liberty and is very articulate in conveying it. He's not the same as Ron Paul. In many ways, he's probably more articulate than Ron Paul. And I think Ron Paul himself would probably even admit that. But over the years, I think, you know, since his Senate victory and since he's started to kind of become a senator, so to speak, we've noticed a little bit of a change. A little bit of a change in his style of speech, in the kind of statements he makes. I don't think I just speak for myself here when I say it's not been a change for the better. Especially for those of us, as we do here, that see this libertarian movement as about ideas and about having the right ideas and about pushing ideas forward. Now, when I say he's changed the way he speaks about things, and I, I think it seems to me that he's starting to phrase his statements differently, starting to say completely different things, or at least things contrary to what we see as a libertarian position, and that's why we choose to point that out, because, to, like I said before, this is about ideas for us. This is about sending the right message, conveying the right ideas. And it doesn't really matter what someone's last name is or if they're running for office. It's important to always focus on ideas because if we get away from that, well, you know, where are we in the first place? Uh, you know, let me jump in right there. You know, you just said right now, and this is the thing that we see the most, is that the last name has such an impact on the way people interpret and view Rand Paul. And you know, like I said, look, when he was first running, we got behind him. He said all the right things. Not all the right things. He got skewered in the media quite a few times, but... He said many, many right things that, that really got, you know, if you're a libertarian, you could agree with most of them. And libertarian thinking people have still taken that Rand Paul that used to exist and put him at the forefront of their minds. And that Rand Paul doesn't exist. And it's, it's almost as if they refuse to accept that anymore, you know? Um, you know, like you said, when we, when we write about Rand Paul, we get a lot of pushback. A lot of people don't want to accept what he's become or they put blinders on as to what he's become and you know i mean i i'm are you guys seeing the same thing i'm seeing oh absolutely and and to be clear we don't just you know we don't just write negative articles about rand paul we also write positive articles about rand paul mm -hmm. it's become a little more of one than the other lately but we try to praise all politicians of all ilks. We praise Dennis Kucinich, Alan Grayson when they take the right position on the Federal Reserve or an anti-war position, something like that. So, you know, we try to be consistent with ideas and not necessarily consistent with what party we support or what politicians we support. We're liberty agnostic. Exactly. That's <laughs> exactly. Whoever is for liberty, we're for. <laughs> now, Odie, I mean, I, I think you're like the rest of us. You were really into Rand Paul when he first came out. He seemed like a real fiery, you know, spokesman for liberty. Is there a moment that you can think that kind of springs in your mind is when you first started to think, okay, something doesn't quite seem right here. Something seems a little off. Well, I, I definitely, definitely was a huge Rand Paul supporter, just like you guys were, you know, when he started his Senate run and pretty much everything he said, it was like a, you know, like a clone of Ron. It was, it was exciting to see something like that come along. And, uh, you know, I even donated to his campaign. Um, I still get mail every week because of that, which kind of stinks. Just got a letter but, today, actually. But, uh, I, I mean, I think I even, you know, I might have got an argument with one of you guys, or I forget who, over saying that he has a toupee. And I would say, no, it's just, just a bad hair day. It's not a <laughs> I mean, that's neither here nor there. But 
It's neither anywhere. here nor there. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we got a count you can get on the Lions Every Podcast. That's the kind of humor you get in the whiskey chat. Because <laughs> after a glass of whiskey, that's just hilarious. Hair jokes <laughs> exactly. and Exactly. I'm actually on my second glass, so, you know, I'm not... Now, not used to drinking as much, maybe slur my words a little bit. But anyway, yeah, I was definitely into, very much into Rand Paul. And I probably can't pinpoint an exact moment when uh, something he said or when it changed. I think I would, you know, hear him, you know, veer off course a little bit. Uh, maybe, you know, for example, when he voted for sanctions against Iran, you know, I'll tell myself in the back of my mind, uh, you know, he's doing this now, but maybe he's just doing it, you know, to appease, you know, the establishment. But he can't really mean that. You know, he's not – that can't be real. I mean, he's Ron Paul's son. He can't really be voting for sanctions against Iran. You know, sanctions are an act of war, as as we know. You know, that's that's not a libertarian uh, belief, not a libertarian principle. I guess it kind of wore on me over time after seeing, you know, instance after instance where he would really just lose his libertarian beliefs completely. Part of uh, what you guys were talking about before, the, the diehard Rand Paul supporters, are they just, you know, just blindly, you know, following him or, or what is it? And I think maybe part of what it is, is they just want to see, and maybe I'm totally wrong, I don't know, but uh, they just want to see a, a winner. You know, so much was invested in the Ron Paul's campaigns and there was a ton of progress made. And maybe some of these Rand Paul supporters aren't seeing the progress that can be made by you know, speaking truth to power. And like I was talking about before, being in a establishment debate and spouting libertarian beliefs. And sometimes that's what it takes to, to wake people up. That's what it took to wake me up is sometimes you don't hear a certain policy or a certain idea presented in, in that way. I mean, you don't hear politicians talk about blowback. You know, establishment politicians would never talk about, oh, you know, it's not even possible in their minds that the bombs we drop in foreign countries could could come back to, to cause terror at home. But uh, it's just been a, you know, a slippery slope for Rand, I think. And at this point, I'm not going to say I've lost all faith in him. You know, I think he can still do do some good, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely not looking up. And maybe, you know, best case, if, if he you know sells out completely and wins the presidency, maybe he has a a Ronald Reagan-like term, and you know, maybe best case we can have a five percent tax reduction and a minute reduction in spending. But in my mind, that's not that's not winning individual liberty. That's not um, that's not advancing the cause of liberty for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And you bring up Reagan, and I think Reagan's a really good example of kind of the idolatry that can go on of holding someone up as almost a god as Reagan still is to this day he's held up as a conservative conservative god when I mean government increased under Reagan the debt ceiling was raised multiple times taxes were raised multiple times and this is what comes across as you know someone that's a libertarian god defense spending increased exponentially there are all these decidedly not small government not at all libertarian things that happened during the reagan administration but to this day many people associate ronald reagan with conservatism with libertarianism i think in many ways that set the true libertarian movement back brian what about you you know what it's it's funny you just said set the true libertarian movement back and there's something you know that, that john was saying i would was saying i wrote an article about this and it was titled Rand paul is hurting the Libertarian Party more than helping it. and Hurting I, Libertarianism. Hurting Libertarianism, that's it. Hurting Libertarianism more than helping it. And, you know, I, I wrote a couple articles, and like Mark said, I wrote an article touting his filibuster of the drones. That was great. That was a huge Libertarian cause. It was great that he did it. Uh, then after that, I wrote an article about how Rand Paul is the uh, the Isle of Lucy of the Libertarian uh, world because it's, you know, he does something great, but then it's kind of, you know, Rand, you got some explaining to do. This article I wrote recently about, you know, is he better or worse Libertarian Party is kind of the same vein in that Rand Paul, for better or worse, is viewed as a Libertarian. And you say Ronald Reagan has said the Libertarian Party, right? Well, Rand Paul, I think, is doing the same thing right now because he is viewed primarily by the public as a Libertarian. That's what he's viewed as. And right or wrong, wrong. that is how he's viewed. If you Google Rand Paul Libertarian, you get a ton of articles with the words Rand Paul and Libertarian in the headline. Even though he has at times said he's not a Libertarian, he said it's an albatross hanging around his neck. 
But at the same time, he is viewed that way in the public. And that's why when he says something that we feel is decidedly against libertarian principles, we're going to point that out and we're going to bring it up. You don't get a special exemption because of your last name or because you're a senator. Exactly. And, you know, it's like when he does these things, especially, great, he gets positive attention for the filibuster for the drones. He gets negative points taken away, uh, you know, when he supports, like you said, sanctions on Iran. When he supports, I mean, just recently, you know, he didn't object to the, the pork barrel uh, kind of spawning for the dam in Kentucky. Well, yeah, that brings us up to an article that just came out this just week today, yeah. uh, where Rand Paul actually defended some pork barrel spending that Mitch McConnell got put into the shutdown bill. Uh, it's called the Olmstead Project. There's an article in Huffington Post, and we'll link to this when we post this podcast on, on our site, on linesofliberty.com. The title is Rand Paul. Olmstead Project, a boondoggle, but necessary. From this article, Rand says, It's one of these things that we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. No pun intended. <laughs> Funny guy. Just like whiskey a politician. Whiskey chat Canada right there. Yeah. <laughs> is, he, is he in a whiskey chat? Why is he making these pun jokes? That, these pun jokes are reserved for whiskey chats, guys. Come on. Because we've gotten halfway into this thing, and it's extraordinarily expensive, and it's a boondoggle, but we can't stop because we do need the damn. Now, this is the same kind of rhetoric you will find in just about any run-of-the-mill Republican or Democrat. They'll say things like, hey, we're against this, we don't think this should be in there, but, you know, it's already going on, it is the way it is, we just had to go along with it to advance X political goal or X political agenda, or in Rand's view, to get the government running again, because Rand has also come out and said, we've got to end this shutdown, the government shouldn't close almost accepting the premise that the government was closed in the first place when only, I say, between 17 to 20% of the government's closed. Really, basically, national parks and war memorials is about all that they closed. Uh, you still had drone bombings going on. I'm pretty sure the NSA is still spying on us. All sorts of things. We still have military bases everywhere. So the very idea that there was effort or true shutdown is equally absurd. Oh, by the way, that same rhetoric is also used when we're in the middle of wars as well. As you remember, everybody said there's no way, no matter what happens, we can't pull out of any of the countries that we're at wars with because, you know, we're already, we're already halfway done. we got to keep going with that. You can't just pull out halfway in. You know, you got to keep in there. So, uh, yeah, the, the rhetoric is ridiculous. If we could jump back to that, uh, that pork barrel spending. Um, yeah, absolutely. go for it. Just for a minute, I think, I think I disagree with you guys. And... I think I think Ron Paul might disagree with you too. Um, I know that this is something that Ron caught a, a lot of flack with, but he definitely would or push to put in a lot of legislation that he would support to bring spending back to his uh, back to his home state and back to his congressional district. And the way that Ron would look at it, and this is a little bit different in Rand's situation, but the way the way that Ron would look at it is. You know, the, the taxpayers in that district, the businesses in that district, um, they're already paying taxes to the federal government. You might as well try to get them to come back and be spent at home. And obviously, you know, it's misallocated and, and all that. But um, still, it's probably better as, a, you know, you're electing your congressman and your senator to, to go to Washington to fight for your district and your state. Um, I think maybe Rand and uh, Mitch McConnell are – I'm not going to say doing a good thing because it shouldn't even be spent in the first place. But if it's being spent, if people are being taxed, the money's being taken out of their paychecks, you know, at the point of a gun, really, individuals and from businesses, you might as well try to get it to come back to your state. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that? And there is definitely something to that. I mean, it's kind of the same thing when, when people go to the extreme and they say, oh, you're a libertarian, you're a hypocrite because you use the roads, or you're a hypocrite because you use dollars, or you use the post office. I mean, they are extracting funds from us and putting it into certain things. So there's nothing wrong with us trying to get that back by actually using some of those services that we can use. Obviously, I do need the road to get to and from. I think the private sector could, you know, create roads and or create transportation. Maybe it wouldn't be as many roads in different ways. But there's nothing wrong with me using it. It was still my money, our money, used for these things. So by that logic, I understand that. What Ron would always use that example with was the fact that, you know, in terms of earmarks, that if you don't earmark the money... You know, in a spending bill, and as you said, that money is still getting spent. And if it's not earmarked, it does go to the federal, you know, to the executive branch. 
So, yeah, you don't want the executive branch to just be able to do whatever you want with it. You may as well earmark it. I think a major difference here is that Ron voted against every spending bill, whereas actually Rand did, did vote against the shutdown bill, but did also defend kind of this, this pork spending. Another major difference is that Ron never really got any of his spending because he didn't make any backdoor deals. He put the earmarks in, but they would never get approved. Earmarks are simply requests, and you know when they go through committee, those requests get taken out or added or what have you. In the case of uh, Mitch McConnell, the original money that was spent on this was actually increased by, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, but... From $760 million to $2.6 billion. Right, it went is, up something like $2.2 billion in extra yeah, funds. And this isn't a bill, this is, the government's already broke, and they're going to say, okay, on top of everything else, we're going to put in this $2.6 billion to finish this dam in Kentucky that's going to save taxpayers, they say, a, a whopping $160 million, according to whatever government math uh, in Kentucky want to follow. Right, so the story we're getting is somehow that spending an extra $2.2 billion in the long run of, of go- however they do this government math, as we'll call it, somehow saves the public, quote-unquote, the taxpayer, 160 million dollars. How that math works out, I'm still not sure. Maybe Paul Krugman can tell us tomorrow <laughs> in the New York Times or something like that. Now, but this brings together kind of an interesting point, and that is Rand's kind of cozy relationship with Mitch McConnell. And it's obviously they're both senators from Kentucky. When Rand first ran for senator, he was opposed by McConnell. McConnell anointed his boy, Trey Grayson, to be the successor um, to Jim Bunning's Senate seat in Kentucky. And the establishment basically got behind Trey Grayson. And it's the grassroots, the libertarians, that pushed Rand with the money, pushed Rand with the funding, and got him into office, got him through that primary. And in Kentucky, if you win the Republican primary, you're pretty much going to be the senator. They almost always go Republican that way. But since that time, since Rand has been a rival of Mitch McConnell, they've become cozy. They've become buddies. They've supported each other. And obviously, if you want to advance things, I understand people... You know, one of the biggest criticisms we get is people say, you guys just don't understand politics. You don't understand the game Rand is playing. He's going to almost they act like he's almost going to sneak his way yeah, into bait the... Bait and switch, they say. That's what they think is going to happen, a bait and switch. It's kind of like in pro wrestling, where you'll have a couple good guys that are buddies, and then one of them turns on his good guy buddy, rips off his t-shirt, and he's got the bad guy shirt on. And this is kind of the reverse of that. Everyone thinks Rand is kind of going to you know, go stealth neocon, kind of act like an establishment guy, get into office, rip off that suit, and have the Ron Paul Revolution shirt on right, underneath. Right. And we're all going to say, see, we told you, he was just playing along to get along and now he's going to usher in a libertarian utopia well what do you think about that kind of criticism you get uh brian i just you know honestly i i think that again if people they want to believe so badly there's true believers and and ron paul had true believers and he had true believers for a reason because he honestly deserved them he earned them over the course of 20 years being the man he he put himself forward to be uh, Rand Paul has altered his stances so rapidly that I just don't see how that I don't see how he's earned the trust people have in him. Where they say that yes, okay, he's going to come in, he's going to rip the shirt off, he's going to be this man. I just don't believe it. I think Rand Paul is it, obviously he's far more savvy a politician. Uh, I think that he does not share his father's views. I don't. I think he does not share his father's uh, spirit for libertarian thought. I think he, you know, what we see is what we get. I think his actions are not some grand scheme that Rand Paul's got just to get ahead and then he's going to fool the establishment. Because, you know, even if you get in, look at Obama, okay? Not that I, you know, not that Obama's anything great to talk about, but look at Obama. He got in. He had these great ideals. What's happened to them? Granted, he got health care passed, which is its own horrible thing, but he's hit a wall, if Rand Paul got elected doing this bait and switch, how far is he going to get anyway? It's not going to work. Even if he pulls off the shirt and he's a libertarian, it's not going to work. So I think we're seeing the real Rand Paul. I think we're this is what you get. And uh, people have to accept that. And libertarians have to stop, stop respecting him and stop supporting him as much as they are. Yeah, and I'm not even sure which is the real Rand Paul because... I mean, obviously, he grew up with Ron Paul, and I don't even mean to say Rand Paul is a bad guy or a terrible person or anything like that. I mean, he may certainly have 
the same views I do. I don't know, but that's kind of the problem, is that I don't know, because I kind of hear two different things from him. I hear one Rand Paul a few years ago, and I hear a different one now. And let me just read one statement from him that I've read. I mean, if, if you can tell me this is a libertarian statement, well then, you know, maybe maybe you guys out there have a different view of what libertarian is. But this is a statement from Rand Paul that from an article last week that was on foreignpolicy.com. And Rand Paul said, The world should be on notice. The United States will act with overwhelming force if it is attacked, or if vital, this is important, or if vital national security interests are at stake. In the case of the Syrian civil war, there is no clear American interest. In fact, U.S. intervention may, might upset the stability of the region and work against our national security interests. By going into a war on the same side as al-Qaeda and other Islamic extremists, we might end up aiding the cause that attacked America on 9-11. While Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is clearly a bad guy, there is no clear military objective in Syria. Now, on the surface, this seems like a perfectly kind of great libertarian statement. He is saying this, this article, he is saying that we should not intervene in Syria. Obviously, we agree we should not intervene militarily in Syria. But this kind of points out a problem with Rand Paul. He kind of tries to walk the fence. He tries to preach to libertarians and preach non-intervention, while at the same time still kind of towing that establishment line, still kind of saying, well, we still kind of are the world's police. Uh, if something threatens our interests, now what? what is a national security interest? According to Rand Paul, you know, Israel is a national security interest. Mm -hmm. He stated the fact that if Israel is attacked, we must state boldly that we will, you know, support Israel in any kind of battle there is. Now, regardless of your stance on Israel and Middle East politics and all that stuff, that is clearly not a non-interventionist position. Brian? I wrote an article about this, and I got a lot of flack over it. And there's two points in, in that same statement on foreignpolicy.com that I'd like to reference. You know, the first one is that Rand Paul, he says this. Our nation's democratic principles give priority to the voice of individual liberties and freedoms. We will defend them with all our nation's might. We will not allow any nation or group to terrorize the free world now or ever. That basically, like you said, says that Rand is saying, we're the police of the world. If you do anything that, you know, infringes on what we consider uh, freedom, we will attack you. We will get involved. We will go across the world to mess with you, to get involved in your politics, to unseat your dictators, which is what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Uh, he actually later goes on to say something else, too, which I, I'm incredibly upset by, and this is why I accuse him of being a militarist, is that, you know, Ron Paul, the father, he advocated bringing home the troops, getting rid of the bases, which is one of the th reasons he thinks that we got attacked on 9-11, which I personally agree with. Uh, you know, because we've been interfering with all these politics across the world. Osama bin Laden's own statements confirmed that. that exactly. He actually said one of the reasons for this attack was the bases in Saudi Arabia. And what did the United States government do shortly after 9-11? They pulled the troops out of Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Almost just saying, yeah, I guess that was really exactly a reason. Exactly right. Tacitly admitting it through their actions. Yep. And But Rand Paul, in this statement, references the fact he goes, well, you know, uh, North Korea, the fact that our troops are there, you know, North Korea will never attack because they know that U.S. troops are stationed on that border. That's great. They know who that's great for. That's great for South Korea. I know they're an ally, but why do we have thousands, tens of thousands of U.S. troops stationed there across the globe there to protect something else from this potential threat when they should be home? You know, it's it's global militarism. It's getting involved everywhere. And I just I just don't agree with it on any level. All right, guys, our first whiskey chat's been fun. I think we've made a lot of good points. I want to get kind of a closing statement from each of you. Odie, you've had your face buried in your in your dim beam for a while. What are your final thoughts on Rand Paul? on the reasons we bring this up and, you know, how we should, I guess, treat Rand Paul, treat politicians, libertarian, not just Rand Paul, but any politician, but specifically those with the libertarian label. Why is it important that we keep the closest eye on those that either claim to be libertarian or the public just sees as libertarian for whatever reason? Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons, but uh, even if Rand Paul, you know, himself, even if, you know, in his heart, if he thinks he's not a libertarian, he's already been labeled as one, so he's carrying the banner. And uh, for that reason, it's up to the grassroots and the libertarian movement to hold him accountable, um, even if he's not a true libertarian. And in order to do that, we have to, when he holds you know, true libertarian beliefs, we have to you know, promote them and pat him on the back and say, great job, Rand. And when he veers off course and holds more neoconservative or interventionist policies, we've got to hold him accountable. There's one test that uh, I think is pretty relevant 
And I like to call it the Lindsey Graham test. <laughs> and in the last couple of days, Lindsey Graham has had some, uh, some actually some nice words to say about Senator Rand Paul, <laughs> which is kind of surprising because... I believe Lindsay. he said he's been very responsible. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, the uh, it's a Politico article that I'm looking at here from uh, 1017, and uh, it starts out, you know, uh, first line, Rand Paul is no wacko bird, just ask Lindsey Graham. So L- Lindsey Graham, you know, set up to be the voice of reason here in this article, uh, quoting Mr. Uh, Graham here, Rand Paul's been incredibly responsible. I've seen a side of Rand I haven't seen before. That's one of the pluses of this whole deal. He's been great. Uh, I can just picture them hugging in the back room after that uh, that quote there. It's just pretty pretty sad to see to see someone like Lindsey Graham, you know, congratulating and patting you know Rand on the back, who just you know two uh, two and a half short years ago. It's kind of kind of like Charles Manson coming out and saying, you know, John Odermatt, he's a good guy. You, you can trust him. I know he's got some weird parties up in his house. There's some girls going up there, but they're not doing anything weird. He's a great guy. It's cool. Exactly. Ooh, and Taylor's by the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Brian, what are your final thoughts on this issue? Well, my final thoughts, and, and I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, is that I view Rand Paul as a danger to the libertarian movement. I, uh, I think that he's done a lot of good things. That's great. The filibusters, etc., cetera, uh, opposing arms sales to Egypt. But the thing is, Rand, as we touched on earlier, he's viewed as a libertarian. And when he takes these positions, when he gets compliments from Lindsey Graham, when he cozies up to Mitch McConnell, your average person... And uh, God, libertarians, uh, apparently as well, your average person looks at him and they say, OK, well, libertarians are um, they're just neocon conservatives. They're just conservatives and they're part of the GOP. And thus, uh, you know, uneducated people are going to say, well, you know, forget that guy. Whereas he had a chance to be a true difference maker if he had, if he had really followed in Ron Paul's footsteps. Ron Paul attracted a lot of followers from both sides of the aisle. Mark and I personally know that. We, in 2008, we went canvassing, we went door to door, and we had people open the doors who were Democrats. And I swear to you people, they actually listened to me. We actually converted people that were Democrats to come to the Libertarian Party and support Ron Paul, who was running as a Republican at the time. If Rand had adopted that, he would have a chance to make a change. He may get the presidential nomination. I don't know if he's going to win. I don't think independents are going to support him. I don't think Democrats are going to support him because they can see through his message or they're going to confuse his message with that in the GOP. And I I think that's a very dangerous thing for liberty. I don't want to see the liberty message be polluted by Rand Paul because of the way he's labeled. Yeah, and I think the overall point here that I'd like to make is that there is no vendetta against Rand Paul. We've gotten accusations of being secret liberals or something like that. You know, we're we're secretly uh, progressives that are trying to infiltrate, uh, you know, conservatism and destroy it and all these these crazy things we hear. But honestly, what it is is not a personal thing. It is about ideas, and it's because we place principles and ideas over some sort of short-term political gain. I mean, the biggest argument I hear is, you know, Rand is just saying X or just cozying up to Y or what have you to, you know, convince the establishment that he's safe and and this kind of thing. And I get that. It's not that I don't understand that. That's what I hear a lot. Oh, you don't understand politics. No, I do understand politics. I know that politics is the problem. Playing politics is why we've gotten where we are. And Ron Paul woke up way more people by spewing the truth. Whereas Rand Paul, with his kind of riding the fence statements, is doing nothing but muddling the truth and confusing the libertarian message. And that's what we want to point out. I have no doubt that Rand Paul is a, probably a great guy. I mean, he's raised by Ron Paul. He seems to know what he's talking about. He's clearly, clearly the best senator. And it's not even close. But, you know, that's like choosing your favorite serial killer. You know, it's still it's the best of the worst. And as far as politicians go, we have to look beyond politics. We have to realize that if we're ever going to truly change society, we have to change the way people think. We have to change the way people view government. We have to change the way people view using collective force, which is what government is on each other. Guys, 
Thank you so much. We certainly welcome your thoughts on this. If you have any thoughts, you can email me directly. I don't give you some BS feedback at lionsofliberty.com address. No, you can email me directly. Mark, that's M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. Let us know what you think about the whiskey chat. I had no plan here. I just had a few notes, no script. It's uncensored. It is what it is. We hope you like it. We hope you check us out on our website, lionsofliberty.com, if you don't already know. And find us on social media, at Lions of Liberty. Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, or if you download the Stitcher Radio app, you can add us to a playlist on there. Next week, we're going to have Walter Block, Austrian economist, professor of economics at Loyola University. Thanks so much to John Odermatt. Odie, thanks for being here. Brian McWilliams, our first in-studio guest, a big milestone in the Lions' Den. Thanks for being here as well. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And remember to live long and live free. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Dobbins.